We are still go with Apollo 11. You're listening to Apollo 11 Legacies. The following podcast captures an Apollo 11 legacy panel discussion recorded in Huntsville, Alabama, as part of the Apollo 11 50th anniversary celebration. The Eagle has landed. The panels feature people with a personal connection to the Apollo project. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced through a partnership with Intuitive Technology and Research Corporation and WHNT News 19. Three, two, one. One German engineer reported the reason for the surrender to Private Schneiker. He said, we despise the French. We're mortally afraid of the Soviets and we don't believe the British can afford us. Those are the words of Robert Stewart recounting the surrender of German rocket team members to American forces at the end of World War II. That team, part of Operation Paperclip, would be instrumental in the future of America's missile program and, of course, the eventual mission to land the first Americans on the moon. Retired Army Brigadier General Robert Stewart was an aviator, a helicopter pilot who flew in Vietnam. Later, he was an Army test pilot, and Robert Stewart was the first Army astronaut. He supported SDS-1, 4, and 5. He would eventually fly on two shuttle missions, logging 289 hours in space. Twelve of those hours were extravehicular activity. General Stewart was part of the first untethered EVA. While training for yet another shuttle mission, he was promoted to Brigadier General, and he left the astronaut corps. He eventually was part of the U.S. Space Command in Colorado. General Stewart retired from the Army in 1992, and he now lives in Huntsville. As you're about to hear, he is an authority on the history of Redstone Arsenal, from the beginning to the building of the moon rocket, the Saturn V. In this podcast, the general begins with the German rocket team, but the end of the story is decades and miles away. This was recorded at the Discovery Theater at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. It had been a convoluted German trip for the civilian rocket men who had been conscripted into the service of the Third Reich. These men always dreamed of flying in space. And during their off-duty time, when they would go to the guest house in Pinamundi, the conversation around the table would invariably turn to important things like the importance of the sixth decimal place in calculating a trajectory to Venus. The problem of keeping a proper air supply to the crew cabin of a Mars spaceship. Now, obviously, at this stage in Germany's existence, every other person inside the guest house was Gestapo. The Gestapo heard this conversation and now convinced that these men were not 100% devoted to the problem of reducing England and maybe the U.S. East Coast to rubble indicated that they were subversives, possibly even communists. Of course, that notion was strengthened by the fact that von Braun was a civilian pilot, and he had at his disposal a German government, ME-108, an airplane that he could use to fly all over Germany, and that was obvious proof that he intended to defect, probably to England, if the war went poorly. And I do believe this story, because I have it from some of my first-hand friends around here that uh, the Skylab was invented at a bar on Jordan Avenue. I, I guess the German mind works better when it's lubricated by warm beer. 
But the V2, or the A4, as it was known to the Germans, was becoming quite successful at pummeling London and Antwerp, which were its two targets. To the end of his life, von Braun insisted that the only thing wrong with his A4 was that it hit the wrong planet. The young, by now he's 33 years old, uh, von Braun and his commander, Major General Dornberger, were becoming well-known to Hitler himself. And Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler saw this happening and his first thought, how can I wrest control of the rocket program from the here and put it into the SS? At 2 a.m., well, it seems to be a favored time, 2 a.m., March 15th, 1944, von Braun was wakened to a pounding on the door in the room that he rented in Kosovo, which was 19 miles south of Pinamundi. And when he opened the door, he was seized by three Gestapo agents and hauled away to a prison in Stettin in what used to be the German Empire. It's now known as uh, some unpronounceable Polish word, which is located just inside the uh, Polish border. The charges were serious, treason sabotage. The penalty for either one of these is death, as only the Gestapo knew how to administer a death sentence. He was a prisoner of the Gestapo for two weeks in Stettin. Dornberger was incredulous and he immediately called Field Marshal Keitel in Germany, but Keitel, ever the coward, Keitel was afraid of Himmler, he was afraid of Hitler, Afraid of the Gestapo. So Keitel refused to do anything. So Dornberger continued on to Berlin and managed to get in touch with Albert Speer, the Reich's Minister of Armaments and War Production. And Speer had the ear of Hitler, and Speer talked Hitler into signing a parole, not a pardon, a parole for three months for Werner von Braun. And those two or three people that were imprisoned with him. Order was signed, Adolf Hitler. But with the war drawing to a close now, chaos was the order of the day in Germany. The Russians were coming in very rapidly onto the Pinamundi facility. Uh, and so people's thoughts turned to, how do I escape after the inevitable defeat of Germany and all that that entails? And then with the Soviet army closing on Pinamundi, von Braun ordered his people out by train to reestablish their operation in the vicinity of the Nordhausen V2 production facility. And this is how Private Schneikert came to capture the man and the team who would put man on the moon. One German engineer reported the reason for the surrender to Private Schneikert. He said, we despise the French. We're mortally afraid of the Soviets, and we don't believe the British can afford us. So that left the Americans. On April 1st, Easter Day, as the war wound down, von Braun directed two of his staff members, uh, a young fellow named Dieter Hutzel, who was a Luftwaffe uh, enlisted man, and Bernard Tessman to gather the engineering data and the blueprints for the A4 and all of the other projects that von Braun was working on and hide them in a secure place. 
It was a target-rich environment since the area was riddled with caves and mines. He settled on an abandoned mine near Dorton and unloaded 14 tons of material, reports, and drawings into the cave. They were unloaded from a truck into the mine and the entrance was sealed very effectively according to the army engineers that had to dig all this stuff out later. Additionally, General Dornberger also secreted his files at Bad Sasha, also in the Harz Mountains, very near this complex. And later retrieval of these files gave the U.S. a huge advantage in rocket development since they detailed not only German success, but also allowed the U.S. to avoid many failure modes and dead-end tracks. After much negotiation ending in Secretary of State Cordell Hull's approval, Von Braun and six team members arrived at Fort Strong near Boston on the 20th of September, 1945. They were subsequently incarcerated at Fort Bliss, Texas, at El Paso, in what has to be the loosest prison compound in the history of the world. There was a big hole in the fence, but nobody cared. Because if you escape from prison in El Paso, where are you gonna go? Have you ever been to El Paso? There's nothing but desert and bad stuff out there. So nobody worried about the hole in the fence. It actually became practical because the, the I forgot the gentleman's name now, that, that was the chief of the uh, uh, navigation lab. Uh, but he had trouble because there's sand all over El Paso and it got into his gyros and was a real problem and he wanted some linoleum to put on the floor to kind of block part of the sand out. The army refused. A couple of days later, there was no linoleum on the floor. <laughs> I, got, I don't know how it got there. Some miracle, I guess. Uh, in addition to seeking out German scientists, a large effort was made to gather missile hardware driven primarily by the news that the V-2 production facility at the nordhausen Dora complex would be turned over to Soviet control. Frantic effort was mounted to get as much V-2 hardware as possible. This effort managed to acquire the hardware which filled 300 train cars and ultimately allowed for about 70 V-2 missiles to be constructed, 64 of which were actually launched out of White Sands. It was kind of an interesting time at Nordhausen. War still on. And these 300 train cars looked like a mighty tempting target for the Army Air Force. So the U.S. Army soldiers down there had to sort of camouflage the thing. And not only that, but bridges, you know, are a favorite target for the Air Force. And they were blowing up all the bridges. They couldn't get the cards out. So the engineers mounted an effort to reconstruct the bridges so that during the daylight they looked like it had been, that they'd been blown up, but that they were easy to restore at night so that the trains could get on out of there. A very interesting time in central Germany. The V-2 rockets that we, the Army captured were taken to White Sands and fired, including putting the first payload into space. It didn't orbit. It just went straight up and straight down. It was a V-2 rocket with an Army WAC corporal on the top, and uh, it returned the first data from, from near-Earth space. The payload uh, achieved a speed of 5,150 miles per hour and an altitude of 250 miles. 
and retrieve data unavailable for any other source. By the way, WAC Corporal is not referring to the Women's Army Corps. It stands for without attitude control. Uh, thus, uh, an interesting satellite. And, and another interesting thing happens in here. The Navy is trying to figure out about missiles and whether they could launch missiles from their ships. And we have these extra V-2s that we have nothing to do with. So we told the Navy that we would launch a V-2 from the carrier deck of the Midway, which we did. And it blew up about 1,500 feet above the decks, raining debris and burning rocket fuel all over the, the flight deck of the Midway and convincing the Navy that they wanted no part of liquid-fueled rockets at sea. We try to be helpful wherever we can. <laughs> On October 28, 1949, the Secretary of the Army approved the transfer of the Ordnance Research and Development Sub-Office Perrin Rocket from Fort Bliss to Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. Having earned their spurs as research scientists, the Von Braun team then transferred to this obscure, recently reactivated Army Arsenal. And by the end of 1950, the U.S. Army Ordnance Guided Missiles Center was in operation. Von Braun arrived in Huntsville on 15 April 1950 and departed Huntsville as its first citizen on February 25th, 1970, having realized his dream of putting a man on the moon. The why for this transfer, it remains clouded in mystery. The official explanation is that Fort Bliss didn't have room for them. Anybody here ever been to West Texas and Southern? I mean, you could put New York State in that area. I think that the real reason is that Fort Bliss no longer wanted them. Why? Because they attacked Mexico. Fired a V-2 one day and somebody let a digit slip in the computations and instead of going north, it went south. Right over the city of El Paso, right over the city of Juarez and impacted in a cemetery just, just south of Juarez. The army is astounded. We have just created an international incident. Uh, time for, for everybody to get really upset. We ran down there with a team of, of uh, scientists to see what the damage it had done. And by the time we got there, we found that the locals were already selling V-2 missile parts at the downtown bazaars. Uh, despite our unsuccessful attempt to sink the USS Midway, the cooperation between the Army and the Navy continued actually was encouraged by the Department of Defense. On June 25th, 1954, Von Braun proposed a joint Army-Navy satellite program using the Army's developing Redstone missile as the launch vehicle. In September of 1954, he also published the first true engineering analysis of a satellite vehicle. It was a paper titled, A Minimum Satellite Vehicle. In January 1955, the Navy agreed and we formed a joint project orbiter. Evidently, this was more cooperation than the DOD bureaucrats had intended, so they killed the project in favor of a solely Navy program to be known as Project Vanguard using the Navy's nascent Viking missile. Fortunately, 
a survivor of this rigmarole that went on there was the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. Equally fortuitous was its commander, John M. Banderas. Banderas. Now, Banderas is an interesting guy, and you'll find out a lot written about him. He was sort of a martinet, with his little mustache and his spiffy uniform and everything, his two big MP guards standing outside the door wearing chrome helmets. Yeah, you knew this guy, swagger stick under his arm. But he did know how to maneuver among the bureaucracies. He did know how to acquire funds. And Werner von Braun knew how to build rockets. It was a marriage made in heaven. Now, if anyone has been in the Army or any branch of the government service more than two weeks, you should be familiar with the infighting which goes on inside the Beltway when large sums of money and large programs are at stake. Army-Navy cooperation began to decrease as the Navy decided to develop solid propulsion while the Army continued to develop large liquid-fueled rockets. But the fruits of the early efforts were realized when the, Ar when the Navy first flew its Polaris missile, it had an Army-Jupiter navigation system in the nose leading the way. We'll return to the words of retired Brigadier General and former Army astronaut Robert Stewart in a moment. We return now to General Robert Stewart and the history of Redstone Arsenal, which is tied to so many things. That includes the German rocket team. Now we'll circle back to the Redstone story with the offering for sale of the old Huntsville arsenal. When General Toftoy first broached the idea of moving the Von Braun rocket team to Huntsville arsenal, he got an answer, irrevocably no! Which like any good military man, General Toftoy could, took as a maybe. And he carried his message on forward to the chief of, our vice chief of staff of the Army, General Matthew Ridgway. Now, he arrived at Ridgway's office to brief with maps and charts and everything that detailed uh, Huntsville and Redstone. He, but the walls were too small for him to put up his charts. So he laid them out on the floor, and he began crawling around on his hands and knees, pointing to this facility and that facility and this route. And as he crawled on the maps making his case, he suddenly found himself right at General Ridgway's feet. And he looked up, and with this big grin, he said, I'm really on my hands and knees, literally and figuratively begging for this place. Must have worked. On June the 1st, 1949, the chief of the Ordnance Branch designated Redstone Arsenal as the Ordnance Rocket Center, the ORC. In April of 1950, the von Braun team moved in with around 130 German contract employees, 120 civil service employees, and 500 military personnel. By this time, the former, Redstone, the former Huntsville Arsenal the stuff was consolidated into what we know more closely today as Redstone Arsenal. In association with the Von Braun team move, the government contracted with Thiokol Corporation and Roman Haas to move in here and start doing uh, research on rocket propellants. The tenant organization thus created 
was the Ordnance Guided Missile Center, the OGMC. You didn't seriously think they could have been remained as the Ordnance Rocket Center, did you? And pass up this superb opportunity to prove Mr. Petronius Arbiter correct again. So the OGMC began to work on a missile called Major. Now, you've probably never heard of Major because it soon became the Redstone family of missiles designated the PGM-11. This missile was a direct descendant of the V-2, and we'll be glad to show you that direct resemblance if anyone wants to go over to the Davidson Hall where we have both V-2 hardware and Redstone hardware. During the Korean conflict, the, the uh, arsenal activity was reactivated and we, when we made 38,700 rounds of chemical munitions here. Stand by, Mr. Arbiter. In 1952, the Ordnance Missile Lab, the OML, was created to supervise activities within the OGMC at the ORC on the RSA. <laughs> Evidently, the OGMC needed some adult supervision because these guys were having too much fun building their little rockets and stuff. The commander of this organization, the OML, was Colonel, later Major General, Holger in Toftoy, the guy responsible for bringing the von Braun team from Germany. Major General Toftoy again proved his resourcefulness when, as the commander, he needed a test stand. He applied for the funds. The Army said, no, don't have the money. So they did build a test stand out of scrap material that they gathered up here and they converted old phosphorus tanks from the arsenal days and made that the blockhouse. That test stand still stands down there and is now designated as a National Historic Landmark. Test firing of the Redstone began in 1953, followed by the first launch at Cape Canaveral on 20th of August, 1953. Von Braun conducted 36 successful launchers of the Redstone before he declared it operational. To think about today, we declare a system operational if someone makes a full color PowerPoint slide of it. <laughs> the PGM-11 Redstone continued to be developed and improved, but in addition to space rockets, we had other rockets to build here. Nike Ajax with its conventional warhead, the first air-to-ground kill with a missile was done by a Nike Ajax. Nike Hercules with its nuclear and conventional warheads, first to intercept a supersonic target missile flying at over 1,500 miles an hour in excess of 60,000 feet. And on June 3, 1960, it shot down a corporal missile. The Hawk missile, a frontline conventional threat. On May the 5th, 1958, it shot down an F-80 airplane at treetop level, which is just what you need for Frontline defense. And on January the 27th, 1960, it shot down an Honest John artillery rocket. Surface-to-surface -surface requirements were addressed by artillery missiles named Honest John, Little John, Lacrosse, Corporal Type 3, which would soon yield to the solid propellant sergeant. The venerable old Redstone went through many iterations and Stages were added, tanks were stretched, engines modified for extended run times. That we even tried Hydine as a rocket fuel. Of course, all of these modifications call for different names and different missiles, 
though to you and me, you look out there, it's a red stone. I remember when a Chevy Bel Air was a Chevy Bel Air, no matter what engine you decided to put into it. It's one of the advantage of being born in simpler times, I guess. Between 1952 and 2011, Redstone hosted an alphabet soup list of organizations who changed names with gay abandon. And I'm not going to bore you with a list of those changes. Just thank Petronius Arbiter. But the first biggie was that formation of the Army Ballistic Missile Agency under Medeiros. Of course, there was the obligatory renaming of missions and facilities and and it begins to occur to me that one good way to make a fortune would be to corner the sign painting concession about, oh well. The next rocket to follow Redstone was a completely new missile configuration called the Jupiter, officially designated as PGM-19. It was the first U.S. nuclear-capable IRBM. And a problem arose when the Army was regulated out of the long-range missile competition, I guess you'd say. But the Air Force, who did receive the mission, didn't have a missile. Their Thor missile was falling way behind in development. So in August 1958, the Army at Redstone Arsenal trained Air Force crews to operate the Jupiter. The Air Force then deployed the Jupiter to Turkey and to Italy, thus precipitating the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because the Soviets thought, if you can put nuclear missiles in my backyard, I can put them in yours. The world very nearly, the civilization of the world very nearly came to an end during that time. But fortunately, the Soviets blinked. The ships turned around, and they began quietly withdrawing from Cuba. And we quietly withdrew Jupiter from Turkey and Italy and pretended that we didn't start the whole thing in the first place. In 1955, a panel chaired by Eisenhower appointee Dr. James Killian recommended that the U.S. pursue a reconnaissance satellite program. But in May of that year, the Army's Redstone and the Air Force's Atlas missiles were strictly prohibited from launching such a satellite. Eisenhower wanted our first satellite, a contributor to the International Geophysical Year, to be disassociated with military weapons. So he put the responsibility squarely on the shoulders of the Navy. I guess that makes sense to somebody, doesn't to me. I, I guess it's not a military program if it's a naval program. <laughs> I'm just an old helicopter pilot. Don't you? The Redstone was a successful rocket with more than 36 launches to a credit. The Atlas by this time was flying a little bit higher before it blew up. Uh, but, you know... It still didn't make sense to put the prestige of the United States of America into the hands of a rocket that only had a first stage. The Viking didn't even have a second or third stage, and it was needed to be stretched in order to be able to lift this whole thing off the ground to begin with. To put the prestige of the United States in the hands of the most immature technology available defies logic and, in my opinion, borders on criminal irresponsibility. Even allowing for my distinctly parochial, and I'll admit it, biased thinking, such decisions must make you wonder if maybe there are other factors 
that we don't know about in play. We'll discover those factors momentarily. In May 1956, the Army, for the second time, offered to launch its satellite and was again rejected. Prohibited from launching a satellite, Medeiros and Von Braun turned their attention to problems of reentry vehicle dynamics and entry heating. On 20th of September 1956, the Army launched the Jupiter C, number RS-27. <laughs> you know uh, Jupiter C missile named Redstone 27? Okay, that, enough of that. Uh, which carried a test nose cone 682 miles into space, 3,335 miles downrange. By, by the way, uh, of all the sophisticated materials that ABMA tested for nose cone reentry ablative heat shields, the most efficient was beech wood. <laughs> but I guess it's not really scientifically technical uh, enough solution to have your reentry vehicles built by carpenters, so it, it didn't matter. The Army's method of achieving a high speed reentry velocities was to fire our multi stage rockets up, but then instead of firing the fourth stage parallel to the Earth's surface to orbit a satellite, we turned it and pointed it straight back down and fired it then. Von Braun commented that the Army had to go to extraordinary means to keep from launching a satellite. As a reward for our efforts in November 1956, a DOD directed directive limited the Army to surface-to-surface -surface rockets with a range of 320 kilometers or less. And with that as guidance from Washington, General Medeiros and Dr. Von Braun built the Saturn. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They built the Saturn. But I guess they, I guess they obeyed the directives because the Saturn was a surface-to-surface -surface missile. They didn't ask, and we didn't tell them and it was surface of the Earth to the surface of the moon. And it had a range of 320 kilometers or less if you put a sufficiently big payload on the top, which would be about a million pounds, you know. Sit that up there, it ain't gonna go but 300 miles. Clearly, in 1956, the Army had the capability to launch a satellite, and we even had the satellite. There was a laboratory run by the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, which funded, was funded by the Army, and it was known then and still is known today as the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, headed by Dr. William Pickering, who worked with the University of Iowa's Dr. James Van Allen to develop the instrumentation package for this satellite to study the radiation environment of near-Earth space as a part of the International Geophysical Year, which, surprise, surprise, lasted 18 months. I guess that's why we called it a year. Uh, anyway, it's your guess is better than mine. These gentlemen cleverly designed their instrumentation package to fit in either the Vanguard satellite or the Redstones satellite. We won. Since it was Eisenhower's desire that the U.S. space program be viewed as non-military, they gave it to the Navy. Oh, well, I still remember that. I still vividly remember watching on TV, we're going to catch the Russians. And I saw the Viking launch to an altitude of about like this. 
before it blew up and settled back onto the launch pad. And I watched Viking do that a couple of more times. Meanwhile, on October 4th, 1957, the Russians launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, followed a month later by the dog Laika, aboard an 1,100-pound satellite. Now we're getting serious. You see, I don't care if the Russians launch a dog or a beep, beep, beep radio transmitter, but if they're going to throw 1,020 pounds into orbit, they can throw a nuclear warhead to the United States of America. Now, we like to pretend that this was a complete surprise to us. That's garbage. The Soviets had been talking about this openly for years. And uh, their Soviet's chief designer, a guy named Sergei Korolev, uh, also planned his first satellite, Sputnik 1, to be a scientific instrument. But he feared, because he was a very smart man, that if he wasted time developing this satellite, that the U.S. would launch something ahead of him. Now, why couldn't we be that smart? So we quickly threw together Sputnik 1 as a totally useless satellite, but one which would announce to the entire world that the Soviet Union was far ahead of the Americans in the space race, a race which we naively didn't even know we were in. On October 4th, 1957, with Sputnik 1 still in orbit, Medeiros again briefed the Secretary of Defense, McElroy, that the Army was still prepared to launch Explorer 1. But no action was taken until after yet another Vanguard failure on November the 8th, 1957. General Medeiros summed, summed things up nicely. He said, in various languages, our fingers were slapped and we were told to mind our own business, that Vanguard was going to take care of the satellite problem. Guess that didn't work out too well. Absolutely no one in Washington realized how the Soviets beating, into a beating us into space would galvanize the, uh, the world opinion. We were now losers. And right up until... 60 years ago, we put Apollo 11 on the moon. That is where we stood, as second place. Eventually, the Army was given a green light for launch with specific direction that the launch take place before March of 1958. Actually, we launched Explorer 1 on January 31st, 84 days after being given authorization. Does anybody think that we developed an entire rocket program in 84 days? There would be other Army satellites after Explorer 1 and many other contributions that the Army would make. Back to the politics and the backstabbing. Who would be in charge of managing the U.S. space effort? Clearly, it couldn't be one of the armed services because of uh, General Eisenhower's preferences. And besides, the armed forces had their plates full anyway, doing what we're supposed to do in defending this country. The logical entity would be the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the NACA. And on January 29th, 1958, Congress changed the NACA into the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the NASA. Now, here's where the sign painting uh, concession would have really come in. There's a lot of signs you've got to change for this. 
Predictably, NASA began looking around for assets because, you see, the NACA was really good at airplanes and aerodynamics. It knew absolutely nothing about rockets and satellites. So they began to look around. Where could I fill this big void in my new name? And predictably, the prime targets, if not the only targets, were JPL and the ABMA. The Army resisted the takeover. But ultimately, we struck a deal with the new NASA that we would give up JPL, but we would keep ABMA. On December the 3rd, 1958, the Army transferred the Redstone Launch Vehicle Program, the Explorer Satellite Program, all JPL lands facilities and contracts, along with 2,328 satellite and rocket engineers to NASA. Three days later, on December the 6th, 1958, the Army launched Pioneer 3 a lunar probe that achieved an altitude of 63,580 miles. This was followed by Pioneer 4 on March the 3rd, 1959. This probe flew by the moon, was slingshotted by the moon into an orbit around the sun. The first time any terrestrially created vehicle entered orbit around the sun. On May 28, 1959, the Army's Jupiter missile launched two monkeys. Their names were Abel, who was a rhesus monkey, and Baker, a squirrel monkey, to an altitude of 300 miles and 1,500 miles downrange. It was to test reentry node cones, and it was a rough ride for these two little dudes. In the reentry phase of flight, they had to endure 38 Gs. It blows my mind. I don't know why these little dudes weren't about the size of pancakes when they got out, but they both survived the flight. Baker was, was fine. Abel died four days post-flight due to complications from the anesthetic to remove the probes from his heart. Baker died in 1984 of kidney failure after being recognized as the world's oldest living squirrel monkey. She's buried right here at the center. In June 1959, NASA funded eight Redstone rockets to launch space vehicles while the ABMA continued working on a really big launch vehicle in conjunction with the Advanced Research Projects Agency. This vehicle was a direct growth of the Redstone and the Jupiter and would be called Saturn I, the first Saturn rocket was a single Juno 2 tank, Jupiter tank, surrounded by eight Redstone rocket tanks. The center Jupiter, the center Juno tank was full of oxygen, and the eight outer Redstone tanks, the black ones are full of, R, of RP-1 fuel, and the white ones are fueled with, uh, with oxygen, in case you're curious about that. Since the Army engineers did have a sense of humor. And they had just built this big cluster of army rockets and called it something else. They refer to the Saturn I as Cluster's Last Stand. 
Roy Johnson of ARPA carried the Saturn program with its 1.5 million pound thrust engines as ARPA's number one priority. The ABMA began assembly of the first Saturn booster at Redstone in April of 1959, and things were going great in Huntsville. So obviously disaster was just down the road. On June the 9th, 1959, the Director of Defense Research Engineering, Herbert York, canceled the Saturn program. His official reason was a lack of military need for such a large launch vehicle. The real reason, to my mind at least, is about to unfold. Because to preserve a national capability, the Army agreed to turn over the Development and Operations Directorate of ABMA to NASA. We'll have more with former Army astronaut Robert Stewart in a moment. He's recounting the history of Redstone Arsenal as we move from Army missiles to manned spaceflight. We return now to the words of retired Brigadier General Robert Stewart. The groundbreaking Army work on missiles and rockets is transitioning to NASA and Marshall Space Flight Center. It only took six months for NASA to renege on their agreement with the Army. Now that might not be a record for duplicity, but it's pretty damn close. As a soldier, I see, I see another lesson here. The Army gave up, do you remember what I said? The Army gave up an important and valuable asset because we put the welfare of the country above our own parochial interests as a service. If only a lesson of this magnitude could be learned by the U.S. Con Congress, put the welfare of the country above the welfare of the party. What a concept that would be. <laughs> the Development and Operations Directorate of ABMA ceased to exist. The Army transferred the Saturn program, 150 remaining members of the Von Braun team, 3,900 ABMA personnel, and 2,500 skilled missile and satellite craftsmen to NASA. On the 15th of March, 1960, literally, these people did not put on their ABMA badges, but when they went to work, they wore a NASA badge. Oh, let's see what to talk about now. The remaining personnel from ABMA, since everybody didn't go, stayed in ABMA and worked on the new Pershing missile. Notably remaining behind this initial migration was a guy named Arthur Rudolph, who was a project manager of the Pershing and who later joined NASA and became the Apollo program manager. Now, in what I consider to be a gross miscarriage of justice, Rudolph had his citizen, U.S. citizenship revoked after he got us to the moon, and he was extradited to Germany to stand trial. In Germany, he was acquitted of the charges for which he was extradited, but the U.S. refused to reinstate his citizenship. How's that for gratitude, folks? Ask the Vietnamese, how about gratitude? Then the Russians did it to us again. On April the 12th, 1961, the Soviets put a man into space. Yuri Gagarin was his name. 
He just made one orbit of the earth. And the small-minded people on the ground said he's not the first astronaut because he didn't land in his spacecraft. But fortunately, wiser heads prevailed and he will forever be the first human being in space. The U.S. was left in the dust of a Soviet space first yet again. Of course, we had a manned space program. It was called Mercury. It was underway. Chosen launch vehicle was the Air Force's Atlas, ICBM, because the Atlas was the only rocket that we had capable of lifting the, the Mercury to orbital velocities. Now, this time, Atlas was getting a great deal higher than it used to before it blew up, but they couldn't find any astronauts that hadn't heard about this, so they came back to Huntsville, Alabama. And on the 5th of May, 1961, Gus Grissom, I mean, excuse me, Alan Shepard, and on the 21st of July, 1961, became the first two U.S. astronauts that rode the old venerable Redstone rocket, which is by now called Old Reliable, rode it into suborbital space. Flights were designated MR3 and MR4, Mercury, MR being Mercury Redstone. The locals around Huntsville began wondering out loud if NASA didn't really mean the North Alabama Space Agency. <laughs> Since no good deed goes unpunished, on July the 1st, 1960, the Army was officially stripped of all its space-related missions. Now stripped of assets, we faced a war in Vietnam, the Army bowed out of the space business. But what a list of accomplishments we had. The Army had put this country on a footing which allowed President Kennedy to challenge the nation to put on the man, a man on the moon before the end of 1969 and return him safely to Earth. And he could never have made that challenge except that he knew the folks down here at Redstone had a really big rocket. And you know, we've talked about a lot of Army first, but let me, let me just run through a, a list briefly just to astound you. Explorer 1, we've talked about Van Allen radiation belts. Explorer 3, the first data collection taped on board for later dumped to the ground. Explorer 4, first solar measurement of data from high altitude and data from high altitude nuclear detonations, uh, which were also furnished by a Redstone rocket that shot the thing up that blew up. Uh, Explorer 4, Space Radiation Environment Studies. Pioneer 3, a lunar probe, 63,580 miles altitude. Uh, March the 3rd, 1959, first lunar probe to escape Earth's gravity and orbit the sun. First solar power cells, March of 1958, developed by the Army Signal Corps for use on the Vanguard spacecraft. First infrared land scanning imagery developed by the Signal Corps R&D lab for Vanguard 2, which, uh, you know, these things ultimately got into the air. First television from space, March 1960, a Redstone suborbital flight. The Tyros satellite stands for TV and infrared observation satellite developed by the Signal Corps for NASA. SCORE, signal communication by orbital relay equipment developed by the Army Signal Corps and carried Eisenhower's 1958 message to the world. ADVENT, an ARPA-funded program for use on the first geosynchronous orbiting ComSat. But let's slip back to the Earth for a while now. In Europe, the Soviets began to field their SS-20 missile system in Europe, and we countered by fielding our Redstone S. 
Now, of course, you've never heard of a redstone S because it soon became the Pershing One. And it was nuclear armed. We peacefully named it Pershing after the forever second ranking officer in the army, general of the armies, John J. Blackjack Pershing. By the way, the senior forever officer in the army is, by law, George Washington. No one will ever take precedence over him. Uh, both of these Pershing systems that were in the field were managed by an entirely new entity at Redstone called the U.S. Army Missile Command, MICOM. In August the 1st, 1962, MICOM absorbed all the personnel, facilities, and project of the old AOMC. And now we're getting near the end. We're getting near the end of the closure of this alphabet soup thing. But I would be remiss if I didn't briefly review the missile naming situation because we've got them all out here in the backyard, except they're all off being painted right now. I hope we get them back here pretty, pretty soon. The Redstone missile became Jupiter-C for the launch of Explorer 1, even though it bore no resemblance to the Jupiter missile fielded by the Air Force. It became Mercury-Redstone for the launch of Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom because it had stretched fuel tanks and its engine had an extra peroxide tank to support the longer burn times. Then it became Juno-1 for satellite launching, and a totally different missile became the Jupiter for military use and Juno-2 for launching satellites. Oh, gosh. You can't tell the players without a program, but here's a hint. Redstone, Jupiter C, Mercury Redstone, and Juno 1 have fins. Jupiter and Juno 2 do not. This was done to separate military rockets from the peaceful IGY rockets and to confuse the Russians. I don't know if it confused the Russians, but it confuses the hell out of me. Further projects along in, the, in Redstone about this time with the Nike X system, the Sentinel and the Safeguard systems, which were designed to protect the U.S. from nuclear attack. With missiles like uh, Nike Zeus, Nike X, Spartan, Sprint, the Army again forced the Soviet Union to the negotiating table and resulted in further arms limitation treaties. While Spartan also served temporarily as an anti-satellite system stationed at Johnson Island in the mid-Pacific. With a nuclear warhead, we didn't need to worry about scattering debris. It just vaporized that sucker. More recently, Army began received a big shot in the arm with the Base Realignment and Closure Commission placing a major Army Procurement Command here in Huntsville. Current scorecards of major tenants on Red Star and Arsenal reads, U.S. Army Materiel Command. That's Oh, boy, did they spend a lot of money. George C. Marshall Space Flight Center, the U.S. Army Aviation and Missile Command, Tactical UAV Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Project Office, the Redstone Test Center, the Missile Defense Agency, the Missile Space Intelligence Center, and the FBI is coming big time. So I think that about covers it. Unless while I was talking, one of the agencies <laughs> decided to split rename a bunch of itself. There, there is one other thing I would like to read to you. I have here in my hot little hands a letter written by Werner von Braun after he arrived in Washington. It's addressed to the commander of MICOM, who at the time was uh, General Edwin Donnelly. And I will skip a little bit of it. 
But von Braun says, please let me emphasize that without the continuous and great help of the U.S. Army elements at Redstone and their highly capable and versatile personnel, the Marshall Space Flight Center and our national space program would not be where they are today. I want you to know the personnel, uh, the personal and official gratitude that I have with respect to our Army-NASA partnership during the past 10 years. The fine relationship that my colleagues and I have long enjoyed with the Army has always meant a very great deal to me. And I am happy to once again express my deep appreciation for the many substantial opportunities that the U.S. Army has afforded me during my long years of association with it. <laughs> and its splendid members. Warmest best wishes, highest regards, Warner Von Brown. You've been listening to retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Robert Stewart, a man who was also the first Army astronaut. Over the course of two podcasts, he's recounted the rich history of Redstone Arsenal, which of course includes vital work on America's missile programs and the mission to put men on the moon. This was recorded at the Discovery Theater at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center. And what you have just listened to was the second of two podcasts with General Stewart. Make sure to listen to the first one, which recounts the early history of the base. To listen to all our podcasts, go to the Apollo 11 tab at the top of our website, whnt.com, where you'll also find other important items from North Alabama's contribution to America's manned spaceflight history. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced in partnership with Intuitive Research and Technology. Content made possible with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Legacy Panel Lecture Series. Music provided by Megatracks.